You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Hello, brothers and sisters. I am coming to you from Boulder, Colorado. I've been spending a little time with my parents and my sister and her family for Thanksgiving week. Um, the day actually after I arrived early this week, I awoke with a few, to a few inches of snow. So I knew I'm definitely not in LA anymore. Um, but because of this new church arrangement here during COVID, we now find connection with people from all over the world and uh, the distance that we can feel being locked down and somewhat isolated can actually bring us near to others who are living far away. So this is uh, my gift to you guys. I'm going to be uh, speaking today and just really trying to share my heart. Um, for our Sunday series, we've been going through the Psalms. And today we will be talking about Psalms of Lament. So depending on which theologian is counting, there are anywhere between 42 and 67 Psalms of Lament in the Bible. Now, out of 150 psalms, you've got then roughly a third of the psalms are about lament. Um, and I've got actually a chart here that attempts to categorize the psalms, which is somewhat difficult because many might fall under multiple categories. But you can see how many psalms of lament there are. And there are personal laments. There are communal laments. There are also uh, laments it, it categorizes as penitential, which is basically when you're confessing and you're dealing with your sins. And then uh, there's a psalm uh, called Psalms of Imprecatory. And those psalms are when you're calling down curses on your enemies. So those are psalms of or curses. So with all that lamenting, you might come to think that it's a good portion of the psalms is actually depressing. Right. But I think that these psalms don't cause sorrow or hostility or despair because they really can't evoke emotions that people don't already know. Um, rather than creating pain, I believe these psalms and laments reveal pain. So I b- believe today in our country and really in our world, we, there's a strong culture of denial. Uh, so this ancient practice of lamentation is something that may be a bit foreign to us. Um, these psalms of lament are, are cries of despair and sometimes anger and protest and even doubt before God. So uh, I, I want to today talk a little bit about how lamenting is actually a crucial step in dealing with our own internal lives when we fail to go through this process of lament. Uh, the stuff we go through, the stuff from our past can affect our journeys uh, in a negative way. So let's first talk about just what does it mean to lament? What is lamentation? So lamentation is actually naming what is wrong. It's naming the pain and it's actually giving expression to injustice. Um, there's a great quote here by Kathleen O'Connor in her book, uh, Lamentations and the Tears of the World. And it, she says, 
Lamentation names what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world, what keeps human beings from thriving in all their creative potential. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions, name them, open them to grief and anger, and make them visible for remedy. In its complaint, anger, and grief, lamentation protests conditions that prevent human thriving, and this resistance may finally prepare the way for healing. So when we lament, it's a refusal to be silent, to expose the name or to expose or to name and to give language to whatever is out of order in God's creation, in God's kingdom. To lament, you may run the risk of disrupting others, like your family, your friends, or maybe even your church. But we should honestly lament our own pain and collectively even the pain of others. When we lament, we know we are still alive. We're, we're part of the game. Um, in the U.S., we live in a culture, though, that oftentimes denies reality and runs away from sorrow. We invest in plastic surgery to deny time and aging. We keep quiet when we should blow the roof off of something and stand up and speak out. Lamenting may disrupt things because to lament is to feel your full humanity. Lamenting can be ex the expressing of grief, but it also can take the form of protest and resistance. So we need to learn how to lament and how to listen to the lament of others. So you can imagine there are probably how many family situations might have been different when a member is an alcoholic and someone decides to stand up and name the elephant in the room and protest. Uh, when you speak a lament, you create a space where perhaps some sort of healing can start to happen. So there's there's a great movie, Forrest Gump, and there's a scene in the movie where uh, the two characters, uh, Forrest and Jenny, are walking in the fields. And um, remember that Jenny has spent most of her whole young adult life running away from the abuse that she received as a child. She's just come home and is confronted with that house where she grew up in, with all of those old memories. And her enjoyable time walking with Forrest is suddenly interrupted. And she suddenly seems to be overcome with rage. She stands in front of the house and she just takes off her shoes and she just flings them at the house. And then she looks down at the ground and she starts grabbing rocks and just throwing them as hard as she can at the house through the windows on the front boards. Um, and finally, when there are no more rocks on the ground, she falls down, crumpled on the ground, just in despair, in a, a fit of just lamentation. Her rage, her protest, then her falling crumpled on the ground is a lament. We're going to look uh, now at uh, a part of one psalm. That is a psalm of lamentation. And uh, this psalm certainly has 
very strong prophetic foretelling within it. But I want to look today at just its raw emotion and how it expresses it. So we're going to jump over to uh, Psalm chapter 22, and uh, we're just going to pick out a, a few verses. It's it's fairly lengthy, and uh, I just want to, uh, us to feel what the writer is trying to express, is trying to exp- uh, explain in their life. Starting in verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And then down in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And then down in verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And then further down in verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. God wants his people to know that he is with them. He wants greater intimacy with his children. He is not afraid of their feelings. And when you hear just the expression of these feelings, they almost make you cringe. How can God who says, I am always with you, be questioned like this psalmist is questioning him when he says, why have you forsaken me? So we see there is a courageousness in lament, being willing to take this kind of expression where you almost are afraid to say that he is belting it out to God. He, he realizes that God is not overwhelmed by our anger and sadness, by our frustrations and pain, by our confusion and even our doubt. God does not frown on our feelings. He's not unsettled. He's holding us in our mess, holding space for us as we cry out to him. So I want to talk right now a little bit about trauma. Trauma is defined as an event or experience in which the individual is rendered completely powerless and helpless. They are not able to stop the event from happening and being completely at the mercy of an external source, person or a thing to provide rescuing. A traumatic event is often defined as just this unspeakable horror. 
And it is because when trauma is encountered, it is so distressing, it's so out of the norm that the person is unable to use words to describe what he or she is encountering. Trauma is often the result of just this overwhelming amount of stress that it exceeds your ability to even cope with it or integrate those emotions involved with that experience. We know even from psychology, the brain is unable to place these things in context, making meaning of it when it encounters trauma. And that distress is often suppressed, pushed down deep in our psyche or in our hearts. And so the result is often confusion, disassociation, numbing, denial, or just collapse. Individuals then get into this survival mode and they use coping strategies like eating or drinking, excessive excessive screen time or pornography or shopping, just to mention a few of these addictive behaviors that people get into or get into the cycle of to not deal with that trauma. These behaviors really have a purpose of alleviating that pain or that distress. So we know that psychological trauma thus damages our mind and the individual on a, and, and even on a larger scale, they can, trauma can affect entire communities. But we know that once we bring our lament, once we bring our stories, our thoughts and feelings into a space where they actually can be held, witnessed and even validated, then we can process them. Then we can begin to heal from them and begin to integrate that trauma, that terrible experience into our whole being of who we are. For healing from trauma to occur, those thoughts and feelings and experiences must be acknowledged and expressed and then witnessed and affirmed. This is really the core of what lament is all about. We bring these feelings associated with our trauma before God to witness, to listen to us, and then to heal us. But it's interesting that we think, you know, these traumatic um, experiences and, and then people deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And so we think of these as just, you know, being in the war or going through, you know, a death in the family or something. But really any form of loss can be a form of trauma. And I really appreciate our church community uh, because we often talk about grieving properly our losses. And in fact, we, we have sponsored several grief recovery groups through our, through our church that many of us actually have gone through. And I know I went through it, uh, about three years ago and it was such a healing time for me. Uh, when we lament, it is an expression of this grieving process we go through. But we know that change is actually a form of loss and we must properly lament it or those feelings can get suppressed and lost down there in our hearts somewhere. So let's talk about why. The why do we need to lament? It is vital for us to complete our healing. Sometimes there are things that we haven't grieved or mourned because we've been too busy just moving. 
We're too busy doing stuff. We're just too busy. And it takes energy and space to dig up those things that we've been hiding or avoiding or denying. We can live in them and they don't have to be resolved right away. We can actually take the time to lament and not feel like it has to be healed instantly. To lament sometimes is just to come to God with questions. You don't have to answer them. You can just let them be what they are. And it's interesting, whenever you hear someone say something like, ah, I just can't get any worse than this, right? You got to pay careful attention because that is the beginning of perhaps a lament. There is space starting to be created. When something can't get any worse than it is, a certain freedom is now becoming available. A sliver of hope. Because you know, if it can't get any worse than this, well, then we're on our way upwards, right? It creates all sorts of new possibilities. When you ask the question, what now? That's a scary question, but it can also be filled with possibility, hope, and even some adventure. So there's an Old Testament scholar, his name is Walter Brueggemann, and he sometimes groups the Psalms into three broad categories, orientation, disorientation, and then new orientation. Psalms of orientation are all about God's right ordering of creation. They are songs of stability, contentment, and praise. And we're very familiar probably with a lot of these psalms, like Psalm 131. Uh, but psalms of disorientation concern the dismantling and disrupting of the old, the known world. And this can include both sin and suffering, both griefs caused by us or griefs done to us. So that's disorientation. But then psalms of new orientation are about finding our way into a new world, a world marked by redemption of pain, by hard-earned hope, and by thanksgiving to having survived the trauma of the disorientation. And psalms uh, like that are like Psalm 40 is an example. So Brueggemann suggests that lament is one of the most important ways we become able to move from the disorientation to the new orientation. And he says, the move from disorientation to new orientation is not speedy or simple. The best thing that Job's friends did was simply to sit with Job in silence, sharing his grief, pouring ashes on their heads in solidarity, and letting the darkness be dark. They don't, and God doesn't, want Job to remain in his grief forever, unhealed, unresolved, but it might take some time. Lament is honest about how very dark the darkness is, how grievous the grief is. Naming it, he says, and bringing it into God's heavenly throne room can open up the space for God to be present there in the darkness. Over time, we make our way not back to the old oriented world, but into a new world. God redeems our grief rather than erasing it. Even after his resurrection, Jesus still had his scars. 
which is an amazing thing to think about. Jesus rose from the dead and was transformed and was almost new and yet still had those holes in his wrist, still had those scars. Here's another quote from Kathleen O'Connor. She says, tears are prayers that reveal our truth before the beloved. God honors tears, receives and tenderly holds tears as if they are precious, explosive testimony that must be preserved for some future day. Perhaps this vigilant, seeing and tear-collecting God weeps with the weeping world. Biblical lament uh, provides a vital way of just maintaining a healthy relationship with our God when one's life experiences don't necessarily even match up with one's beliefs. So when we don't lament in a situation, we can deny our own authenticity. And as many of psychological theories out there promote, um, and when when we don't have authenticity, it leads to a person having reduced self-esteem and a lower uh, sense of personal well-being. So when we lament, it not only creates for us space to heal, it also allows us to connect to others into our lament. And we can provide them language and expression for their own lament and ultimately their own healing. What's interesting is this psalm, uh, written hundreds of years uh, before Christ, was actually quoted by Jesus as he hung in agony on the cross. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm not going to get into all the different theological ideas of what might be uh, might have been exactly happening at that moment. But I do want to point out that I believe that Jesus, in his extreme suffering, connected with that suffering of the writer of this psalm that was written centuries before his time. They had shared agony, shared suffering. And it is songs, it is poetry, it is art that has a way of connecting us and our hearts to the depth of lamentation from from people throughout the centuries. I know personally for me, um, several years ago, I went through a uh, personal crisis. I went through a divorce. And as things were approaching toward the point of divorce, I was having weekly therapy with my wife. We were trying to work things out. And uh, at one point, I remember my therapist observed that my character was always optimistic, always very hopeful. And she said, that's great, but it might be helpful for myself and actually also for my wife for me not to just try so easily to jump to positivity and hope. She said, in fact, she gave me an assignment for a few weeks not even to use the word hope. She said, try to embrace the darkness and despair for a little bit. So it was obviously kind of strange advice at the time. 
But something deep inside me knew it to be true, knew it was right. Even though that had never been something that I had done before, I knew that my wife was often reacting to me seemingly out of touch in my persona because I was always super hopeful. And even my my level of depth and ability to be compassionate and empathize, I felt was really lacking because I wasn't willing to really jump to this island of darkness and despair. I was always trying to jump to the island of light and hope. Um, I know I needed to grow into my just depth of emotion at that time. And then as my marriage and my entire life kind of was starting then to unravel, there were so many people that were coming up to me and, and they were trying to encourage me with reason or a scripture or thoughts about what God might be doing. And, and at this time, when I was in the thick of things, those things didn't really help me. What helped me were the people that would come up and just sit with me, listen to me, ask me a couple questions about the, my day or what I was feeling and just listen. Um, they might have offered to pray with me or even pray over me. Uh, when someone is lamenting, you can't really approach them with reason or logic, rules or structure. It can actually serve to push them away because it just doesn't make sense during that time of lament. And sometimes it can even feel offensive. So let's talk a little about art and creativity. All right. When we suffer, literal language often fails us. When you look at that psalm, he's, he's talking about, I am a worm and not a man. So we know he wasn't a worm, actually, right? Writing this down. So it was metaphorical language. He said, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. So he wasn't literally circled by a bunch of bulls. He says, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. So we know he probably wasn't grappling with literal lions. But this is what he was feeling. This is the state as if a lion is ready to consume me. This is where he was. So so we know that literal words can often fail us when we're kind of at that point of lament. When you see that all over in the Psalms, so many references are pictures that are metaphorical, attempting to describe the feeling. So I read a book while going through my divorce called The Dark, Dark Nights of the Soul. It's by Thomas More. And in it, he talks about how when we go through a time in our life where we're just being wrecked, where it just makes us crumpled to the ground, he would call it the dark night of the soul. He says these are the times where the people's creative impulses most come alive. And, and he said that it's actually because logic and reason structure begin to lose their meaning during these times. He said it's actually a fantastic time to visit an art gallery or a museum um, because you start to see art in a new way. Start listening to music 
classical music, musics that are sad songs, country music, for goodness sake, and and even perhaps write new music. These are times where the words, the the the, the songs, uh, the music can just have deeper meaning. And uh, even to read poetry, it just makes a huge difference. Um, poetry is a creative process. All the Psalms are, in fact, poems. And, and po- poetry is this creative process in which the it, un, unnameable can be named. It has the power to put into words what we consider inexpressible. So there's a book after Psalms in the Bible called Lamentations, in fact, and it's actually just five chapters, which are five um, uh, connected poems. And for several of the chapters, each verse will will begin with the successive letter of the Jew, the Hebrew al- alphabet. So there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 verses. So it's written in this poetic style but so incredibly um, raw with emotion and rage and despair. So this is what poetry can do for us. It can give us language that that isn't logical, that, that is something that can connect with our hearts. Um, it transforms chaos into order and rhythm. Poetry is, as a lament, is a form of meaning making and has the power to transform our pain into purpose. Let's talk a little bit about community uh, lamentation. So what we're going through really as a nation and as a world through this pandemic is this massive communal lamentation. People's lives are being changed and often wrecked. And so that you hear so many cries out together as as a world. Um, and you see it come out in all forms. Um, Black Lives Matter. Uh, that statement itself is actually a form of lament. Uh, it's an expression that there are some people who haven't felt valued, haven't felt like they count by our general society and the systems. And, and when people try to reason that, well, it, it shouldn't be Black Lives Matter, it really should be All Lives Matter, they're be- bringing this irrational argument to a lament, which that can often have the effect of being offensive to those who are offering or experiencing that lament. They can feel disqualified or invalidated. So we need to really be able to provide space for lament. And in fact, perhaps this is one of the jobs of the church even to create the appropriate and proper space for people to lament what needs to be lamented. Because when things that haven't been spoken or named or protested are brought out into the open, well, who knows what that might be able to lead to. So I, I, I want to actually now flip and give you a little example uh, of a letter that is lament. It's kind of humorous, written by a, a person on a uh, airline flight who is experiencing a terrible situation. And if you've flown very much, you, you know, you probably experience a tough situation. Uh, you might call this a lament. Dear Airlines, I am disgusted as I write this note to you about the miserable experience I am having sitting in seat 29E on one of your aircrafts. As you may know, 
This seat is situated directly across from the lavatory, so close that I can reach out my left arm and touch the door. All my senses are being tortured simultaneously. It's difficult to say what the worst part about sitting in 29E really is. Is it the stench of the sanitation fluid that's blown all over my body every 60 seconds when the door opens? Is it the whoosh of the constant flushing? I constructed a stink shield by shoving one end of the blanket into the overhead compartment. As without my evil glare, passengers feel free to lean up against what they think is some kind of blanketed wall. I am picturing a boardroom full of executives giving props to the young promising engineer that figured out how to squeeze an additional row of seats onto this plane by putting them next to the lav. I would like to flush his head in the toilet that I am close enough to touch and taste from my seat. Putting a seat here was a very bad idea. Worse yet is I paid over $400 for the honor of sitting in this seat. Does your company give refunds? I'd like to go back where I came from and start over. C-29E could only be worse if it was located inside the bathroom. I am filled with a deep hatred for your plane designer and a general dis-ease that may last for hours. I suggest that you initiate immediate removal of this seat from all of your crafts. Just remove it. A good place for sturdy, non-absorbing luggage, maybe, but not human cargo. Right? So, a very comical letter that was written several years ago. Instead of staying silent, he decided to write this letter of lament, turning protest and resistance into poetry, turning something very negative into something that as we read it, right, it's strangely invigorating, uh, almost, you might say, life-giving. All right, so so here is my challenge for us. As you consider uh, the losses in your life, is there a loss that you haven't properly lamented? Is there anything perhaps that you haven't really protested and said enough? Your challenge this week, our challenge is to take the time to read through a psalm of lament. Listen to music that speaks to your heart and write down a prayer of lament. Speak it, cry it, yell it out. And you may need to literally fall down crumpled onto the floor as your body just feels the weight of your lament. We all encounter crises, trauma, and suffering in our lives. And when we're able to properly name it and grieve it, it loses its power to negatively influence our path. So may you, brothers and sisters, discover the space to properly lament the past abuse or loss or trauma that may be affecting your heart still today. And maybe you be able to name it and express it with whatever voice you find to find healing from the God of all compassion who listens to every word, every tear, and every sigh. Thank you. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net. 